Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things that are relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Amy Imms, who is a doctor based in Hobart and who specialises in burnout. This episode is dedicated to every healthcare worker who has worked during the pandemic. I think almost all of us have faced a change to our usual job description, might have had to juggle working from home, homeschooling, contemplated early retirement, faced job, exam or financial uncertainties and worried about our own health or the health of our families. Is that all of us? Probably. This episode is for you. Thank you for giving up some time this morning. No worries. To talk about burnout. Jeez, this could be a big topic, I think. It is. Huge topic. The main reason I wanted to do this podcast with you is because it's been a long few years. The Mm. pandemic has gone on for ages. I'm hearing from anaesthetists, nurses, lots of people. I've seen on social media people taking a break, people admitting they're burnt out. Mm. So I wanted to touch base and see... Are we more burnt out? Are anaesthetists more burnt out? But I thought before we can tackle that question, we need to go back and actually try and understand what burnout is. Yes, definitely. It's a big topic because it's not something that has been really well defined for a long period of time. Back in the 70s, it was first described. And then for a long time, it was really considered by some areas to be perhaps a milder form of depression. And so the way that it was researched was not particularly good and people had these different definitions. So the most recent one was the World Health Organization definition, which was basically saying that burnout is the result of ongoing stress, sort of chronic stress that's not been successfully managed in the workplace. So they specifically talk about it in terms of workplace. Really, there are some problems with that because obviously those stresses come from all sorts of areas of life and you get people who aren't working at all. Maybe they're studying or doing a PhD or something else and not actually working. And so then they talk about as part of that definition, so you've got this stress that hasn't been well managed and then it results in these three main domains. So they see this exhaustion, depersonalization and reduced efficacy. Before we go into those a bit further, you make an interesting point there because that's one of the things I've classically heard about burnout is you feel those characteristics during the week or the the days that you go to work. Mm. And then when you've got the weekend and you've got time away from work, then suddenly things get better. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the things that can be helpful in trying to distinguish it from something like depression, because obviously there's a whole lot of overlaps between burnout and all sorts of other things that can be going on. And I think most of us feel a bit burnt out by the end of the week, (laughs) but we wouldn't necessarily say we've got burnout. But yeah, one of those differences is that with, say, depression, those feelings of reduced motivation and low mood will persist pretty much all the time. Whereas with burnout, we see often those more distinct changes of we pick up on the weekend and then we get that sinking feeling and dread and things on a Sunday and then, yeah, that exhaustion during the week. And then again, pick up on the weekend or if we've got some annual leave or a little bit of time off. Sounds like a lot of people that I work with at the moment. Unfortunately, yes. Are you finding that? Are you finding that there is more burnout at the moment in healthcare workers because of the pandemic or because of all other reasons? Absolutely. Burnout, it's not particularly well studied. We don't have really solid stats, but it was looking like it was significantly increasing anyway before COVID, just with increasing demands upon everybody, both from work and other areas of life. And then when COVID hit, then we got 
a dramatic increase as well. But it's a little bit tricky to tease out some of those areas because there's been an increase in burnout with COVID, but also an increase in acknowledgement and seeking of help for it. So that probably makes it look like it's increased a little bit more than it really has because there were a lot of people who were burnt out already, but felt like it perhaps wasn't justified or why am I feeling like this? And it seems as though everybody else around me is coping just fine. So I won't tell anybody about it or perhaps even acknowledge it to myself. Whereas I think with COVID, because it's such a widespread issue, then in some ways that gives some people some permission to say, yeah, you know, I'm struggling and I feel justified in that, that this can be attributed to COVID and not feel like a personal weakness or a low resilience or something like that. Okay, so that's a potential benefit of the pandemic that more people are coming forward and and seeking that help? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's good. Are you able to comment on whether you're seeing more anaesthetists coming forward or more operating theatre staff? I haven't seen one particular area of medicine over the others. I generally see probably most GPs compared to other areas of medicine. And I'm not sure why that is. I don't know whether that's just me or other people working in this space find the same thing, but definitely amongst hospital specialists in general, I am seeing increased burnout and difficulty with all those different factors of understaffing and constant changes and unpredictability and then trying to manage all those things going on at home as well, obviously with a kid's home from school because it's closed or is there a lockdown or what else is happening? Oh, there's been a lot of changes. And I do think we've been asking a lot of GPs in the last few years, particularly with all the COVID precautions and managing COVID patients at home and all the increased case numbers. So I can understand if that is a real increase, Mm. uh, not just a reporting bias. And interestingly, with anaesthetists, although I personally haven't observed a change in numbers, With my work, there has been an indication with some of the statistics that we see overseas. So in the US, they did a study and they were looking at burnout rates amongst all different specialties and it rose in all specialties, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) It must be nearly all of them, but definitely in the critical care ones, so including anaesthetics, there was a rise from pre-COVID to during COVID. Oh, there you go. I could imagine there'd also be a really big rise in emergency department burnout, not just with the medical staff, but the nursing staff and perhaps everyone cleaning staff particularly, I've heard. I wanted to go a little bit more into those features of burnout because people might be putting up with them. They might not be recognising that these are some of the things. So going through the first one, exhaustion, that seems pretty self-explanatory. Do you want to just give us a little bit more detail on that one? Yeah, as you say, that's pretty self-explanatory and it's that tiredness that feels pretty pervasive that it's an increase from your normal kind of tiredness that's not necessarily specifically associated with an extra long day at work or some shift work but you just feel fatigued all the time and then sometimes noticing that particular in relation to work so you're noticing that you get much more tired as you come into that work week and during that work week compared to weekends it's also added to by poor sleep. So most people who are struggling with burnout are worrying about all sorts of different things and perhaps using some unhealthy coping mechanisms that add to poor sleep as well. So that staying up worrying, staying up late just because that feels like it's the only time you get a chance to have some time to yourself that's not <laughs> work and stressful, waking up during the night and thinking about things. So there's that double side to it. There's the exhaustion and then there's that poor sleep that just adds to that. Oh, that's good to know. So watch out for that. And perhaps uh, we're flagging there something that people can do about it is perhaps getting Mm. better sleep habits or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And then there was the depersonalization. So what does that mean? 
So this is where we start to get a bit of a detachment from emotions and other people. So when you notice people becoming more cynical, a reduced ability to show empathy and compassion towards other people, because I think we just don't have much emotional reserve left there to be able to show that towards other people. And then as a consequence of that, often people become more easily irritable, they'll withdraw and socially isolate. So all that sort of comes together and has quite a dramatic effect really on relationships because of that withdrawal and lack of compassion. I could imagine that. So we could be a little bit more curt with our patients and then perhaps not as engaging with our colleagues. Yeah, and then those interactions become less rewarding and less effective and then that just increases it. So it's it's like a lot of these things that you get a bit of a snowball effect that once it starts, it kind of builds up and gets harder and harder. Mm, absolutely. And I think sometimes having those great debriefs with your colleagues or even just having those really wonderful patient interactions, sometimes they can give you a little boost. So you're right, you do miss out on those, don't you? Yeah. And then the last one was decrease efficacy. What goes on with that one? Yeah, this is an interesting one. So sometimes if somebody's burnt out, then the effects of that can be that they're not showing this compassion, things that we're talking about. They're not concentrating as well. They're perhaps not making as good decisions, not able to think as clearly. So you can see a a drop in performance. But what you can also see is not a true drop in performance, but a perceived drop in performance or a perceived reduced efficacy so people are actually still going to work and performing very well but they're coming away from it feeling like I'm doing a really bad job at this why am I not doing very well and other people are and doubting decisions and wondering you know what's the point of this am I actually achieving anything here in my role am I actually helping my patients and all those thoughts that go along with it that's interesting and I think sometimes anesthesia may be a little bit protective like that in that we get that immediate gratification I think we've all gone along and we've seen a patient and we thought, oh, maybe this will be a difficult cannulation or a difficult airway. And magically the drip falls in or the airway wasn't as difficult as you perceive. So you get that immediate kick of, oh, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. I think immediate feedback is really helpful in those kinds of situations. And we do have to bear in mind the way that we can sometimes respond to that in that you might have a big long list and you do a whole lot of procedures and maybe you only miss two or three of those, but in your mind at the end of the shift, they're the ones that you're thinking about. So it also just depends on, yeah, what's that actual response that we're having? So there's that objective thing of how many things went well and how many things didn't, but what do we actually go home thinking about? What are we thinking about in that last hour as we're trying to go to sleep can be quite different to that reality. Oh, that's a really good point. Thanks, Amy. That's a good one. Okay, so say people listening have identified some of those features. They're thinking, I'm not sleeping that well. I'm dreading going to work. I'm, I'm not really hanging out with my colleagues as much as I used to. Part of it is because we can't go to tea rooms together. It's all become a bit awkward and a bit difficult. What can people do about it? I always say the number one thing you need to do is to get some sort of objective assessment. So usually this is going to be seeing your GP and that's for a couple of different reasons. One is that we need to make sure that this is actually burnout. So burnout is not a mental illness. It's a description of this effect of ongoing stress that hasn't been managed well, but it often exists alongside mental illnesses. So we need to make sure that that diagnosis is correct and not just with mental illnesses, but with physical illnesses as well. So I've seen several times people who have come in feeling burnt out and then we find out they've actually got a severe iron deficiency anemia or they've got an early thyroid disorder that hasn't been diagnosed yet. I've had people presenting with anxiety where it's turned out that it was actually a malignancy. So we need to make sure that there's nothing else going on. Now, 
sometimes you might be burnt out and have one of those things. So I'm not necessarily saying if there's something else going on that you're not burnt out, but obviously you're not going to get very far with treating it, particularly things like the fatigue if you've got a major iron deficiency as well. So we need to get that assessment to make sure the diagnosis is correct and we're not missing something else. We also just need an objective assessment because we're really bad at assessing our own state of mind and how serious that is. And I think as doctors, we often justify it a lot. Well, GPs would be the classic example, I suppose, of people who are assessing other people in very similar situations every single day. And yet when it comes to assessing themselves, they're really wildly off the mark sometimes. Very important. Okay. And that's a good plug that I hope everybody who's listening has their own GP. Absolutely. And get one early because if you've got someone who you know them, you trust them, you know that you're going to feel comfortable talking about this kind of thing with them, it's so much easier than if you find yourself in this position and then you have to go through this process of finding a GP who's taking new patients and then going and seeing them. And do I even click with them? Can I talk to them about this kind of thing? Can I have those conversations? I'm worried about reporting or those concerns that stop people from going and seeking help. Oh, absolutely. And the fear of APRA reporting is a big one. I've talked to a lot of people, uh, not a lot, because thankfully there aren't a lot, actually. I've talked to a few people who've had various issues along the way, mental health, physical health, other things. And the fear of APRA is huge. And I've got to say, by and large, it's never been as bad as they fear it to be. Yeah, and I think it's improving. So I think the communication around what the APRA reporting requirements are have become clearer over recent years. And so I think a lot of doctors feel there's a much higher threshold that needs to be reached to have to report it to APRA. And really, you've got to have a situation where somebody's well-being is having a real chance of effect on patients and it's going to be a problem and they're not managing it appropriately. So it should be a really high threshold for it to be reported. And I do think it's worth, like anything, bearing it in mind because we've all heard those cases where things have not been handled well and where people have reached out for help and it's had really unfortunate outcomes. So we do need to think about those things and if you have those worries and I think having those conversations with your GP up front because sometimes your GP might not have reread the APRA requirements recently. So sometimes having those conversations can be helpful for everybody and a chance for education for them as well. Good point. And I've often in my experience with people in all these various situations that can potentially lead to upper reporting is that the earlier you tend to seek help, the better things can be. Yeah, definitely. The earlier you seek help for burnout, then the quicker and easier it's going to be to manage. And obviously that's going to have less of an effect in terms of APRA and things as well. When we look at the stages of development of burnout, so we go from early on when there's no burnout at all and people are really engaged in work and participating well and not feeling particularly stressed and then there starts to be this beginning phase of stress and then it builds up to become more of a chronic issue right on down to severe burnout. Generally, we don't see people seeking help until that rock bottom point because the problem is that doctors can function so well. So they're so resilient. They have to have been so resilient to get through medical school and through those junior doctor years that generally they can show up, they can keep doing their job, they can do it really well and they can be falling apart inside or at home or wherever they feel that safe space to do it. So until they get to that point where they literally cannot function anymore or they notice suicidal thoughts or something that just triggers that I just cannot avoid this any longer and then that's when they seek help. So we're trying to encourage that help seeking earlier in that process. Very good point there. I want to segue a little bit and ask, because I know you've started the Burnout Project. Mm. 
And I wanted to ask a little bit more about that and how you got involved in this kind of work. Yes, I'd always been quite interested in this area. Before I even started medical school, I had a friend in high school whose older brother was a surgical registrar and he took his own life. So that was my first exposure to the idea that being a doctor could be really hard. (laughs) And then during medical school in those early doctor years, I just noticed a lot of doctors around me who seemed to be really struggling and especially the ones who I knew them as an intern. And then I would see them progress through and seemed to change a lot as they got into those registrar years and sitting exams. And, you know, there's really, really tough times of career. So I had this background interest and then I was doing my GP training. So I didn't finish it. I stopped and started doing this work before I quite got to the end of it. But in my GP work, I saw a lot of patients as well with similar struggles and I realized how late they sought help. And a lot of them didn't really think of it as the kind of thing they could go to their doctor about. It just sort of feels like, well, I've got all these problems in life and work and it's not a thing that a doctor's going to be able to give me a pill for or something. You know, they're just my problems that I have to figure out. So not really seeking help for it. And then because it's not a mental illness, then accessing things like psychologist care can be really challenging for some people. And the other thing that I noticed was that it would often be family members who would come in and have concern for their husband or their wife or their child a lot before the individual would acknowledge it and come in. So the very beginning of this idea of the burnout project was actually to draw upon that, that perhaps a way to encourage people to seek help earlier would be for these family members and friends or colleagues who've noticed that struggle to be involved in that process of getting them some help. And so I created these packages where I wrote a book as a helpful, really practical resource that could be part of this package. So if somebody was worried, they could order it anonymously if they wanted to, to be delivered to somebody to go, hey, you know, someone's noticed that you're struggling. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But if you are, here's some resources to have a bit of a look at and just think about it. Wow, fantastic. In actual fact, most people actually just order them for themselves as far as I can tell, which I think (laughs) is perhaps even better. I don't know. (laughs) So so what's the name of the book and where do people get that from? Uh, So that's called Burnout Your First 10 Steps. And you can get it from most online book retailers or you can get it from my website, which is theburnoutproject.com.au. Excellent. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks. But yeah, the Burnout Project's expanded a lot since then. So that initial idea and then on top of that, I work with individuals and workplaces. So from an individual point of view, then I do burnout counselling. So that's just telehealth with Australian clients. Probably 80, 90% of the people I work with are doctors. And then I run a few group programs and workshops and other things for individuals. And then with workplaces, sometimes that'll be a a bigger ongoing kind of project. So I might work with a workplace doing a series of 20 different workshops with managers and other staff looking at what are their systems they've got in place, what factors at their workplace are contributing to burnout and what can they do about it, where are those places that they can make changes Other times it might just be a one-off workshop for their staff. I'm glad you talk about workplace and systems issues because burnout could be a result of chronic understaffing, chronic Mm -hmm. over-rostering, all these sorts of things that no matter how much you put into an individual, it's not going to overcome how toxic or unhelpful their environment is. So how do you balance it in terms of your priorities there? Yeah, it's a big sort of cognitive shift for me sometimes going between those two areas of my work. So In the workplace stuff, I think, as you say, there's so many of those system issues that need addressing. And really, if we want to reduce burnout rates, then that's where we need to be doing it. It's like anything where that prevention is better than a cure, figuring out what can we actually do. 
so I really enjoy that work because I feel like we're getting down to those root causes and actually making a big difference for potentially a lot of people. And then when I'm working with individuals, frustratingly, a lot of those system issues have to get set aside because when you've got that one person in front of you to say, well, we need to make some system changes, but look, that could take another 20 years in your industry isn't really helpful for them in that moment. So then we're going, okay, we know this burnout is not your fault. It's all these other things that are going on around you. But right now, what are your needs and what things do you have control over? And really people have got not a lot of choices. I mean, the choices are really either they leave their job, they stay as things are, or they stay and we do our best to change what we can. And when I say there aren't a lot of choices, when we talk about that option of staying and changing what you can, sometimes that can be quite dramatic. So we look at, okay, what can we change? And then once we've been working on that and looked at what can we change and is that making enough of a difference, then that's the question is, is that enough of a difference? Have I been able to change enough and see enough scope for further change that I still want to be here, that this job is meaningful for me, important enough to me or essential enough to me? Not everybody has that choice to just leave their job or not and then you consider leaving. Have you found that with some of the people that you see that they have ended up leaving their jobs? Yeah definitely so I've had some people who have left their job or changed their job I've had people who've got multiple roles and they might perhaps shift you know how many hours a week or something that they're doing between different roles so I don't have a lot that have you know left medicine altogether or necessarily changed specialties but changing practice or changing jobs, that kind of thing. But I would say most don't change jobs. Most people stay in the role and work through those different things to make as much of a difference as they can and see pretty significant progress doing that. Oh, good. Okay. So all is not lost. You don't have to give up work. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe it's, it's a good idea too, if you can. Uh, complex, complex question. You mentioned about 90% of the people that you see are doctors. Mm. The remaining ones in health, or have you started seeing people from other industries? No, Yeah, no, I see people from lots of other industries as well. So real estate agents, politicians, CEOs, people in IT industry. It's pretty broad, you know, it's everywhere really unfortunately when we look at those burnout rates and the statistics when they were originally looking at it in the 70s then they were looking at those kind of caring professions because it's got that extra emotional kind of load to it and also a sense of altruism that goes with it that it's it's an extra complicated part of our career that we really want to give a lot because we want to help people and I think that makes it a lot more difficult to sometimes set those boundaries. You go, well, I'm not just going to leave at five o'clock because if I don't, this is actually somebody's health in my hands as opposed to perhaps some other industries. So, yeah, they were looking at nurses or healthcare workers in general, teachers, those kinds of areas. But over the years, we've seen that there's really just so much burnout amongst so many different industries because even those ones where you don't have that emotional element as an integral part of your job, there can be so much pressure and deadlines and understaffing and HR issues and it's it's just complicated everywhere. (laughs) It is. And it's all things that have been amplified with the pandemic, isn't it? I just dropped my daughter off at school today and they were telling me about how difficult it was to find teachers because there's so many teachers off sick at the moment and... They were sounding a little bit stressed as well. Absolutely. And I think that's another thing that we need to remember that when we look at those different options of maybe I just shouldn't be a doctor anymore or something, that the grass is always greener. You know, we look at these other careers and we think, oh, maybe that would be better. And a lot of things that we think, oh, maybe that's just our job because that's where we're noticing it. And then you see actually it's in, in so many different jobs. 
Well, you've made an interesting step in that you left your GP training to focus on this work. Mm. I'm assuming you still have medical registration. Yeah, so with my counselling work. So that's the only clinical part of my work that I have left and then the rest of it is non-clinical. Yeah, right. Interesting. So that's a big step to go from medicine into more of an entrepreneurial kind of work. Yeah, that's been an interesting pathway and not an easy one initially. I think I didn't even know there were other options really. You know, I just thought you chose a specialty and you studied for that. That's what you did as a doctor. I think now it's much more recognised that there are lots of different things that you can do with a medical degree. And I think that's a great thing because there have always been people who have studied medicine and come out the other side and then perhaps realised that maybe this isn't the best fit for me, but stuck with it anyway because I felt like there was no option. And I don't know, maybe they were great doctors anyway. Maybe they really struggled and weren't great doctors because it wasn't a good fit for them. But a lot of the skills that we learn can be very helpful in other careers. And I don't know if you've heard of the Creative Careers in Medicine. They've got you know a Facebook page and conferences and things. And I went to some of those early on and found that a really helpful place to gather with other people who were taking a similar kind of path and looking at what are those other areas of medicine and how can I be a doctor in the world without necessarily working in a hospital or a GP practice and do I still have something to contribute and all those more philosophical questions that you ask about yourself and who you are and what does being a doctor mean and I think that's generally something that people struggle with when they have that question about do I want to be a doctor anymore because doctors often have their career very tied up in their self-identity and their feeling of self-worth. Oh, definitely. How long have you been doing the burnout project for now? I think it's about six years now from its very infancy. It didn't quite become the burnout project until a couple of years into that. Wow. It would have been fascinating taking those first few steps Yeah, fascinating, scary. And also the process of deciding that you, in a way, want to leave medicine, even though you're still practicing, Mm. that would have been an interesting process to go through as well. Yeah, absolutely. And especially because early on, I wasn't sure whether I would leave altogether. And then as it turned out, I did keep that counselling going and I've really enjoyed that and want to keep it going. So yeah, it was a really interesting time thinking about that and what would that mean to me and is that something that I want to do? And somebody at the time said to me that they always advise making decisions that are irreversible if you want to and that was such good advice to me and so now I give the same advice to other people. I So if people have that opportunity to take some leave from a training program, for example, or take leave from work instead of just quitting, or if you're leaving your job or taking some time off, keeping your registration going for as long as possible, all of those sorts of things, because often what people find is they feel really burnt out by work. I just cannot do this anymore. I hate it now. I don't get any joy from this. I never want to do it ever again. And then when they've had a period of time for a break from that and working through some of those issues and feeling better and healthier and happier, then they often realize that actually there's a lot about that job I do like. It was just the way that it was happening that was really not working very well for me. And so then want to return to that in perhaps a different format or part-time or a different kind of related role. So I think that's yeah really good advice that I received to keep things as open as possible in terms of your options. So don't make rash decisions and don't make them permanent rash decisions. That's right. Don't make rash decisions when you're feeling really burnt out. If you are going to, then please just talk to somebody else first, ideally somebody who's objective. It's good to talk to your friends or your spouse or whoever, but having somebody else to talk to as well and bounce those ideas off and just get a little bit of advice because it can be so hard to think through these big decisions when you're not feeling great. 
Oh, absolutely. But it sounds like you've made that transition, not completely stepped away from medicine, and it sounds like you're really enjoying it and it's going really well for you. Yeah, I am. There's so much in this kind of work that I'm doing now that really suits me, that sort of opportunity to be creative and try to think of those bigger kind of solutions to things and getting that chance to do some of my work, which is away from people, researching and writing and preparing and that kind of thing that I really enjoy. But then there's a lot of face-to-face work as well. And so I've been able to create it into something that suits me really well. And I hope that through my work, I've been able to help some other people do a similar thing with working out how they can modify their careers in ways that suits their needs or Sometimes we don't get those things from our job, but we can modify the way we do our job so that we can fulfill those needs through other areas of our life. Wow, fantastic. Sounds like you're doing well and congratulations. If there's people listening out there who are feeling potentially burnt out, what would you say to them? Is there anything else that we haven't discussed yet? I think we've probably said this a little bit or at least hinted at it, but I think the main thing that I want people to know if they're feeling burnt out is that It's not them, that it's not a sign of failure or weakness or a sign of low resilience that even if it feels like it's just you, I can almost guarantee you that most of the doctors around you are feeling the same way. And if you've realized that you're struggling with that, then take that first step and reach out to your doctor or if you've got a mentor or somebody that you trust to get some sort of support and start talking about it, it feels really scary at first. But generally, once people open up to somebody else, then often the other person opens up back because it's so common that chances are whoever you're going to talk to about it is going to have experienced the same thing or a similar thing. So just getting those conversations going and starting to seek some sort of help and just recognizing that although we've got these massive, massive system changes that need to happen, sometimes I see doctors then feel that, well, we shouldn't try to address ourselves. But right now for you, if you're feeling burnt out, then we need to look at you to try to make that start of what can we do within what you can control right now. Is there anything that we can do to make you healthier and happier and get that kind of joy from work back again? Oh, that's really important. So realize that you're not alone. There are people around you probably all feeling the same thing. I can definitely vouch for that in my workplace. 100%. (laughs) And there's plenty of resources. And don't try to fix yourself. Yeah, focus on yourself. And that's where, you know, people come in contact with us at the ASA to help Mm. us try and fix the system on those sorts of things. So that's where we hopefully try and help people there as well. You don't have to take it all on by yourself. That's right. And if you can help yourself well enough, then who knows, maybe one day you'll be part of that solution as well. Exactly. Is there anything else that you want to say about your burnout project? Other than just to say that if you're needing help or you want suggestions of where to go, then I'm always happy for people to get in touch with me. My email address is just info at theburnoutproject.com.au. If I can point you in the right direction of a person or a resource or anything like that, then I always love to try to help people as much as I can. Oh, you're wonderful. Thank you. And I'll put a link to your website into the show notes as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for chatting with me this morning. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. I love any chance to try to encourage people and just have it spoken about more so it becomes something that can become a normal part of our conversation and not something that's got that stigma attached to it like everything else mental health related. So thank you. Thank you, Amy, for sharing these insights into burnout. I always feel much better talking to experts about these topics and I hope you've also found this episode helpful. Perhaps describing the features have reassured you or maybe given you some ideas for how to better support your colleagues. 
perhaps you've decided that you'd like some help or to learn more about it. If you're in this category, then please do look at Amy's website, theburnoutproject.com.au, which I have included in the show notes so that you don't have to go looking for it. If you're wondering what it might be like to have an objective person to sit down and talk with about these things, then I suggest going back to episode 42, that's 4-2, where I chat with Dr. Melanie Johns, a general practitioner in New Zealand, who is also a professional supervisor. In that episode, I also chat with Dr. Renee Franklin, who is an anaesthetist, who is also a supervisee or someone who goes and has professional supervision. And it's not the supervision that we talk about in theatre. Another place to look for resources is the ACE website. That's A-C-E, which stands for Anesthesia Continuing Education. This website is where you'll find updates from all the special interest groups that are managed by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, as well as the College and the New Zealand Society. One of those special interest groups is the Wellbeing SIG. On the Wellbeing SIG page, you'll find links to some useful resources, a curated selection of these podcasts, such as how to form peer groups, a personal perspective on substance misuse, and navigating a long period of time away from work. You'll also find details of Wellbeing SIG activities at any of the upcoming conferences. Of course, I'll put a link to that page in the show notes. And also don't forget, if something has happened at work and you are concerned about APRA, do get in contact with the ASA as we may be able to support you through the process. All right, I hope you've been able to take some time for yourself and that you know you're not alone and of course that you're staying safe and well out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa at asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes, and of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.